Hello and welcome again to Lost in Science and we continue this week with our summer series where we hear from speakers at Laboratory, a monthly event in Melbourne where people talk about their science heroes and some science villains. This week we're hearing from Atlanta Collie about the good and evil ways of birth control pioneer Mari Stopes and Danny Meesday will dig up dirt on the long-running and melodramatic rivalry between paleontologist Othniel Charles Marsh and Edward Drinker Cope. So stay tuned. talk to you tonight about Mari Stopes. Um, Now she was an amazing woman who uh, contributed a tremendous amount to the recognition of women's reproductive rights. I like to think of her as the woman when I wake up in the morning and think it's a great day to not be pregnant. (laughs) Mari Stopes contributed to that. Um, Now... (laughs) Mari Stopes, she's very close to my heart. Uh, I've spent quite a bit of my life working in health education. I've done a lot of sort of sex ed, talking about contraceptives in various parts of the world. Spent a lot of time in Eastern Africa in front of church congregations doing uh, family planning, talking about various birth control methods. And on more than one occasion, an elderly man will stand up and quote Genesis at me. And he says, in Genesis, God spoke to man and he told him to multiply and fill the earth, and I've been accused of blasphemy, and I've always wanted to say at that point, surely at seven billion, God would turn to man and go, tick. (laughs) Job well done. Uh, Some solid teamwork there, guys. Excellent. Now, why don't you guys take a break and await further instructions? Mari Stopes, I feel, is the kind of person who would have actually said that. She, she, was, she was a very brave woman. Um, and she... Uh, I'm not going to call her my science hero because while she did a great deal for women's rights, she was also a Jew-hating eugenicist. <laughs> it's not the sort of thing we should just overlook. She, she was born in 1880, and uh, as a girl, she actually went to her parents, and she said this to, to her parents at a very early age, that she was going to spend the first 20 years of her life in science, the second 20 years of her life uh, in social projects, and the third 20 years writing poetry. She had a 60-year plan. <laughs> She makes Stalin and his five-year plan look like an underachievement. Not only that, she pulled it off. That's actually what she did. She's pretty amazing. She wrote 70 books in her lifetime. I will be pleased with myself if I have read 70 books in my lifetime. Um, She completed her PhD in paleobotany in 1904 at the age of 24, and she became the youngest doctor of science in Britain not the youngest female doctor of science, the youngest doctor of science. 
very early on. She researched coal balls and seed ferns. Uh, she was contributing towards, she was hoping to contribute towards Edward Seuss's theory on the existence of Gondwana, the supercontinent, and her work even before she hit her strides in the area that she's actually well known for made a massive contribution. Now, Stopes was a woman who knew what she wanted when she saw it. And on an expedition in Canada, she met a man called Reginald Gates, and she wanted him. <laughs> Within 48 hours, the two of them were engaged. <laughs> and they got married three months later. But the marriage went from whirlwind romance to disaster in a very short period of time. I can't imagine why. Uh, it turned out that Gates was, in fact, impotent, and Stopes was not pleased with this. <laughs> so she had the, the marriage annulled very early on, arguing that the marriage had never been consummated. And, uh, look, this changed everything from Stopes. And now, I've had a year in which to write a better joke than this, and I still haven't. <laughs> Preemptive apology, but Stopes now turned her attention away from coal balls... To human balls. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> she became very interested in sex and she went on to explain that she had paid such a terrible price for her own sex ignorance that the knowledge that she gained at such a cost should be placed at the service of humanity. <laughs> and what better way to service humanity, if you will, than to write a sex manual? what she did. It was called Married Love and it was about sex and marriage and it promoted birth control and included survey data from hundreds of interviews with women that uh, Murray Stopes had actually undertaken. She, yeah, she did a tremendous amount of research. She finished the sex manual in 1913 but it took five years for her to actually find someone who would publish it. Uh, these were, were very early, very conservative times. What she had to say was extremely controversial. As soon as it was published, it sold out. She sold 2,000 copies of her sex manual in three days. England was ready for sex. <laughs> Perhaps the most controversial thing that the manual noted was, get this, women... Enjoy having sex. <laughs> they do it not just to please their husbands, not just to produce children, but they too have sex drives. Not only this, but women having sex drives was normal and healthy. That's pretty radical stuff. Um, to quote the manual, uh, so widespread in Anglo-Saxon countries is the view that it is only depraved women who have sexual impulses that most women would rather die than acknowledge that at times they feel a physical yearning indescribable but as profound as the hunger for food. <laughs> Am I right, ladies? Uh, the manual also went on to dispel quite a lot of myths about sex that were sort of getting around at the time. One of the myths that it busted was uh, a quite a common belief at the time that when a man uh, becomes hard, that his entire penis is filled to the brim with semen. <laughs> and that if the situation is not dealt with, 
he will suffer an injury. I'm not sure she was very popular with quite a few people after busting that myth. The manual went on to confirm the existence of the female orgasm and husbands, uh, Murray Stopes noted, who had never witnessed this phenomenon, uh, she went on to, to counsel them that man's orgasm is often so uh, quickly achieved that it sometimes precluded women ever achieving theirs. It was voted, this manual, the sex manual was voted in 1933 to be one of the most influential books ever written. Take that Bible. <laughs> uh, Stokes was flooded with thousands of letters from men and women thanking her for her work. Uh, she became a household name. And you know that you're properly famous when there's a schoolyard rhyme about you? Um, last time I did this, I did it with a horrible Cockney accent, and I'm not going to do that to you guys again because I respect you. Uh, but it went, Jeannie Jeannie, full of hopes, read a book by Mari Stopes, but to judge by her condition, she must have read the wrong edition. <laughs> Making fun of pregnant people, not popular with the crowds. There we go. Good to know. Um, the book was mainly aimed at the middle classes because, you know, Stopes was a very middle class person herself and she saw the limitations of this. So Stopes' next mission was to take birth control to the working class. So she had pamphlets printed uh, and had them distributed among the slums in East London. But the project was abandoned after families in the slums told the well-meaning pamphleteers to get lost. Uh, it turns out that the working class was a little bit suspicious of middle class people coming in and telling them that perhaps they should have less children. <laughs> can't, can't imagine why. Uh, as you might imagine, uh, Stopes made enemies with the church who called her work obscene and immoral. Uh, so Stopes did what she did in any situation where she met opposition. She went head on in. Uh, she went to a, the Anglican Bishop's Congregation. I think there was over 500 bishops at this congregation and she stood in front of them and there's, there's no way to paraphrase what she said, so I'll read you the quote. My lords, I speak to you in the name of God. You are his priests. I am his prophet. I speak to you of the mysteries of men and women. So, yeah, the church, however, has not always taken uh, kindly to those who've declared themselves prophets. Uh, for further information, please see the case of Jesus v. Romans. <laughs> and uh, it didn't work out well for Stopes either. In fact, both the Anglican and Catholic churches in this time doubled their efforts to make contraceptives and indecent literature illegal. Um, but she, Stopes responded like a true activist. She took a book about the failings of Catholic birth control methods and she chained it to the steps of Westminster Cathedral. 
1921, her and her second husband uh, opened the first birth control clinic in all of the UK, in London. And this was a massively controversial move. Uh, across America, birth control clinics at the time were being raided and shut down. Uh, and she gradually built up this network of clinics across Britain, uh, including the first, and I'm probably going to guess the only, horse-drawn con- uh, horse birth control caravan for your birth control needs on the go. Uh, Stopes started to build... uh, This was the time that things started to go a little bit pear-shaped. She started to build up a bit of a bad reputation for trialling unsafe birth control techniques uh, on working-class women who actually came to her clinics. She was trialling something called the gold pin, which, when inserted in the uterus, would create a hostile environment and um, basically create sterilisation. And it was creating lots of infections, but she was pushing to continually have this trialled on people Uh, And she was not, in fact, in any way medically trained. It was the frontier of science at this point in time. And as mentioned before, there's no getting around the fact that, sadly, Stopes was a eugenicist. Uh, She believed that through sterilising the, quote, unquote, inferior, the depraved and the feeble-minded, the race, the human race, could be purified of genetic problems. And she was so devoted to this belief system that when her son brought home his betrothed, who had glasses, she disowned him because she didn't want grandchildren who were short-sighted. Quite the character. People started distancing themselves from Stopes at this point in time as her anti-Semitism started to make waves. Stopes, in 1939, even sent a copy of her love poetry to Hitler. (laughs) And the cover letter said, Herr Hitler, remember, love is the greatest thing in the world. (laughs) Didn't he know it? Stopes died in 58 at the age of 77 from breast cancer and in the same year of her death, Anglican bishops acknowledged the need for birth control, accepting that procreation was not the sole purpose of a Christian marriage. And I think, I think we struggle uh, to know what to do with characters like Murray Stopes who contributed so much to uh, the cause of birth control and women's rights but had some pretty uh, problematic politics along the way. But I think we can reflect that in 1976, Mari Stopes International, the organisation, was set up. It took over running uh, Mari Stopes clinics across the UK and to this day works in over 40 clinics, sorry, 40 countries running over 400 clinics offering uh, contraception and birth control to women all over the world. So hopefully we can reflect on the whole thing and hope that the best of Mari Stopes' legacy has been carried on and hopefully the worst left behind. Thank you very much. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. We'll now return to the Labora story where we will hear from Danny Meesday filling us in on the 
melodramatic and long-running rivalry between early paleontologist Othniel Charles Marsh and Edward Drinker Cope on Lost in Science. Thank you very much. Um, so the theme of science heroes conflicts a little bit with the two pioneers of paleontology I'd like to speak about tonight. Edward Drinker Cope and Othniel Charles Marsh did not heroically overcome poverty or oppression to rise to scientific greatness. They were both born into some privilege, in fact. Cope came from a very wealthy family in Pennsylvania, and Marsh's family in New York were not particularly affluent, but he had a handy millionaire uncle, George Peabody, who funded much of his career. Descriptions of Marsh and Cope use the word spoilt a lot. In fact, spoiled is one of the more flattering adjectives used to describe this pair. Other descriptors I've heard, ever unhappy, underhand, unscrupulous, egotistical, mistrustful, jealous, ambitious, possessive, ruthless, strange and bitter. Hmm. So I was a little bit hesitant to tell their story uh, when there was a few more uh, underappreciated pioneers of paleontology out there, like Mary Anning, who discovered her first ichthyosaur when she was 12 years old and spent the next 35 years patiently and skillfully extracting enormous sea monsters from the cliffs along the English Channel. But I'm happy to say that Mary Anning has already been spoken about at Labora's story, so she's someone else's hero too, which is fine, I can share, that's all right. And besides, the story of Marsh and Cope is just a really good story. Um, and their careers in paleontology did take the known species of dinosaur in North America from 9 to 150. Their contributions also gave us some of the world's most beloved and iconic dinosaurs. The big sauropods, like the Apatosaurus and the Diplodocus, but also the Triceratops, Stegosaurus, virtually all oh, the Allosaurus, and virtually all the household names minus the T-Rex. It seemed to take a really frustratingly long time for paleontology as a science to get going. Although humans worldwide had been digging up fossil bone for many thousands of years, producing legends of dragons and cyclopses and giants, the appearance of these fossil bones had never really been attempted to be explained by science. For example, in 1787, an enormous fossil femur was discovered in New Jersey, New York. It was examined with mild interest by several people who all politely agreed it was, yeah, a really big bone. And then the bone was placed into a storeroom and promptly lost. Um, over the next half a century, uh, some rather radical shifts in thinking and advances in science were occurring. And this really paved the way for our protagonists of um, Cope and Marsh. So I'll just tell you a little bit about these advances. At the end of the 18th century, jaws and claws and vertebra began to come out of the ground and be described by scientists. But there was still no formal framework for the theory of extinction. It's really quite interesting to think about uh, these monsters coming out of the ground without the theory of extinction. You have to kind of speculate that people are like, are they just in a forest somewhere? Like, where are they? <laughs> um, so the first formal theory of extinction was written by George Cuvier in 1796 and was met with general unease, really, particularly by the church, because multiple extinctions seem to suggest that Noah's flood was maybe only the most recent of events and that maybe God was uh, perhaps more prone to casual destruction than they previously thought. <laughs> Um, but while the world wrestled with this uncomfortable thought, William Smith was creating the map that changed the world of modern geology. Published in 1815, this map, this map co correlated the ages of rocks in Britain by using the fossils that were present in each strata. The term paleontology was coined in 1822, two years after the first reasonably complete dinosaur skeleton was found, a hadrosaurus. The exhibition of his articulated skeleton at the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia caused exhibition attendance to triple overnight. Everyone here who works in the museum thinks, yeah, triple overnight, let's do that. Um, the word and taxonomic clade of dinosauria, the terrible lizards, was named in 1841 by Sir Richard Owen, 
who presented a two-hour lecture to a bewildered audience describing the group containing Megalosaurus, Iguanodon and Hylosaurus. And then the world went a bit dinosaur mad. In 1854, a life-size concrete iguanodon was built in London, and 21 scientists had a dinner party inside it on New Year's Eve. <laughs> the, dinosaur, uh, the invites were printed on fake pterosaur wings. And in 1859, On the Origin of the Species was published, outlining the theory of evolution by natural selection. So all of this momentum was leading, up to, leading towards a dinosaur gold rush, and this is where Cope and Marsh began their scientific careers. These two men had two things in common, a passion for paleontology and a fiery contempt for each other. Theirs is the story of a friendship turned into a rivalry so vicious that it left both scientists almost destitute later in life, destroying their wealth, tarnishing their scientific reputations. Bill Bryson says in a short history of, uh, a short history of almost everything, seldom, perhaps never, has science been driven forward so swiftly and so successfully by animosity. They met in Germany in 1866. Marsh was there studying natural history, and Cope was on a, tour of, a study tour of Europe. Cope was 23 years old, recently heartbroken by the girl he'd hoped to marry, and despondently staying in Europe to avoid conscription into the American Civil War. Despite a lack of formal training, by this time he had already written 37 scientific papers. Marsh, on the other hand, was a bit of a dapper gentleman, a decade older than Cope. He had two university degrees, his uncle's money at his disposal, and had written a total of two scientific papers in his lifetime. By all accounts, this first meeting went pretty well. Um, Marsh showed Cope around Berlin, and they stayed together for about a week. And on return to America, Marsh went to Yale, and Cope went to the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia. But they remained in close contact by sending each other letters and fossils and photographs, and even quite sweetly named a few species after one another. So what went wrong in this blossoming bromance? Some biographers point to a field trip that they took early in their friendship, where they visited the site in New Jersey where the first complete dinosaur had been found. One look around the site showed that it was rich with fossils, just waiting to be described. When Cope's attention was diverted, though, Marsh slipped the owner of the land a thick wad of cash and got him to promise to send all of the fossils found to him alone. But one attempt in particular is noted as the absolute death of their friendship. Cope had just published a paper on a new species of plesiosaur that had been sent to him for investigation. He named the creature Elasmosaurus plateris and published a description without realising that he had reconstructed the creature with the spine running in the wrong direction and had put the skull on the end of the tail. <laughs> on a visit to the Academy of Natural Sciences to see the reconstruction, Mark publicly and apparently quite gleefully pointed out Cope's mistake. Cope was angry and embarrassed at the public slight, and he tried to purchase all the copies of the journal that had the error, but he was too late to avoid the humiliation. The dissolution of Cope and Marsh's friendship gave way to an extreme competitiveness, where both men were determined to prove who was the better scientist. Cope's publication output went from frequent to insane. Over his career, he wrote 1,400 papers and described 1,300 new species of all kinds of fossils. <laughs> I love that. <gasps> <laughs> He is one of the most prolific authors in American scientific history, and even purchased the American Naturalist Journal to keep pumping out species descriptions when other journals couldn't keep up. <laughs> on top of this, he was frequently in the field digging for new finds. On occasion, he was hospitalised for exhaustion. His style has been referred to by contemporary paleontologists as taxonomic carpet bombing. <laughs> and this rapid pace of working often led to mistakes. He wasn't particularly gracious about corrections either, and has been known to try and blame mistakes on printing errors. Marsh published less frequently and more succinctly, often correcting Cope's mistakes along the way. He was not said to be particularly good at fieldwork and spent only four seasons in the field in person. 
On one trip to the famous fossil beds of Wyoming, he apparently returned empty-handed, despite the fact that bones were so numerous at that site that people built cabins out of them. <laughs> but Marsh was devious, lucky, and very well-connected, and with all the Peabody millions behind him, he could pretty much pay people to dig on his behalf. He was also not above bribing people to get his hands on good specimens. So while Cope worked furiously on his papers, Marsh sent agents out into the field to collect and acquire as much material as possible for his own study, but also as a way to keep Cope's hands off getting... Get a kick, well, sorry, keep Cope's head from getting his hands off his, on his fines. Whoa, that was a tricky sentence. Um, <laughs> the cash that he was willing to spread around meant that he was soon receiving entire train cars full of fossils at Yale. Marsh and Cope began working in the Wild West with particular interest in the bone beds around Wyoming, Montana, and Colorado. The dinosaur rush was now in full force, and the cracking pace of species discoveries was creating a tangled net of classifications which isn't still fully unraveled to this day. These finds were not all unique. In fact, between them, Cope and Marsh managed to discover a species called Unitherus anceps on 22 separate occasions. But to Cope's fury and humiliation, many of Marsh's names were deemed valid by the scientific community, while fewer of his own names managed to stick. To reclaim ground, Cope published broad studies reclassifying whole groups of animals in order to decredit Marsh's work. And then things went from bad to ridiculous. There are accounts of Cope and Marsh's digging teams throwing rocks at each other. <laughs> Marsh paid spies to update him on Cope's progress. Cope paid a prospector to steal, steal bones from Marsh's dig site. Cope was caught red-handed attempting to prize open crates which belonged to Marsh. Dig crews were dynamiting their own and each other's localities to prevent the other side from getting their hands on fossils. On top of this, the local Native American population, whose lands were being dug up and occasionally blown up, were particularly unimpressed. Apparently, Cope once diffused a very tense exchange with a group of Native American locals by taking his false teeth in and out for their amusement. <laughs> their bickering soon spilled over from academic papers into newspapers and Cope produced a journal which he'd kept in his desk drawer for years in which he had written elaborate notes on every dishonest behaviour and every mistake that Marsh had ever made. This included accusations of plagiarism and mismanagement of public funds. He gave this journal to the press. Marsh was never investigated from these claims, but the affair was so ugly that Marsh was removed from his position and Cope's relationships with universities and museums turned sour. Both men's careers, finances and health dwindled after these events. They died within two years of each other. On his deathbed in 1897, Cope donated his body to science with two accompanying requests. The first was that he wished to become the homo sapien type specimen. <laughs> A request which was rejected when his skeleton showed evidence of syphilis. <laughs> the second desire was to have his brain measured in the hope that his brain would measure larger than Marsh's and prove once and for all his superior intelligence. <laughs> Although their contribution to science might best serve as an example that haste creates waste and that no one will want to work with you if you're a massive dickhead, <laughs> Cope and Marsh's legacy is still apparent today. Their personal collections became the backbone of the paleontology collections of the American Museum of Natural History, the Smithsonian, the Philadelphia Academy of Natural Sciences and the Yale, Yale Peabody Museum. Charles Darwin commented that Marsh's personal collection was the best support for the theory of evolution that he had seen. A few years after Marsh's death, the first articulated brontosaurus, now known as Apatosaurus, or there may be Brontosaurus again, um, you can thank Marsh for confusing classifications when it comes to dinosaurs, um, was prepared at the American Museum of National History. It was partially cast from Marsh's specimens, and then the exhibit was open to the public. 
This provided people their first opportunity to stand beneath the towering form of a sauropod and feel the scale of it against their own bodies. One of the joys of working in a museum is catching people, especially kids, in this very moment, staring up at the dinosaurs with their mouths hanging open. From first sight, dinosaurs have a way of getting their claws into you and not letting you go. Which brings me back to the theme of science heroes. The dinosaurs discovered by Cope and Marsh have been amazing ambassadors for science for the last 150 years. Although we know, what we know about dinosaurs is changing, they're quicker and smarter, more feathery than Cope and Marsh could have ever imagined, Cope and Marsh did give us the iconic dinosaurs of our childhoods, the ones of the land before time and of Jurassic Park. And there is no doubt that they did inspire generations of scientists with their discoveries. Thank you so much to everyone for listening to me, especially my always inspiring Museum Victoria colleagues. You guys are the real science heroes. <laughs>